You can open with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to continue our study this morning in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. We looked last week at just the first few verses of Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel's sacrifice. And today we'll look at the fallout of that sacrifice and specifically at Cain's sin. I'd like to begin this morning by, um, by talking about eyeglasses and nuclear war. Um, I, I wear eyeglasses. Um, I have since, since my first year in college. I, I started getting really severe headaches from all the reading that I was doing and all this, this studying um, and had to go to the eye doctor and they prescribed me reading glasses and, um, and um, now I even have bifocals because the, <laughs> the need for distance vision has arisen as well. But I haven't always had glasses. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I didn't. I had, I had, my vision was just fine. It was 20-20, I suppose. And, uh, uh, but I wanted glasses. And this is a confession. This is, this is an embarrassing story that I'll tell you here. Um, uh, when I was in kindergarten, most all the boys in my class had glasses. I was jealous of them. I wanted glasses, too. It was just the cool thing to do. And so um, I began a life of crime, <laughs> or at least of deception. Um, I started squinting in front of my mother <laughs> in very subtle ways. And being the compassionate woman that she was, she said, Ian, are you having trouble seeing? And what began as a subtle deception became, became more of an overt lie. Yeah, sometimes things are a little blurry, I guess. And, and I didn't realize that I began something then which was soon to spiral out of control. Because within a few days, I was in the back seat of a car headed to an eye doctor's for an exam. And I had to ponder there in the car whether I was going to come clean or whether I was going to allow my mother to drive me to Dr. B. Aker's office to be examined in downtown Livermore Falls, Maine. And I doubled down. I said nothing. And what began as a little squint ended up with me in the eye doctor's chair faking an eye doctor's exam, which for a kindergartner is awfully difficult to do, and which on my part was not successful. And uh, the eye doctor, Dr. B. Aker, very um, tactfully informed my mother that I was faking the whole thing and um, discreetly informed her of this. And on the way home, my mother not so discreetly informed me <laughs> that something like this is never going to happen again. Do you hear me, Ian Lewis Jewett? <laughs> it's an embarrassing story and maybe a funny one, but it's a phenomenon which, which we all, I presume, are familiar with. That what can begin with a, 
seemingly a small sin, a small misstep, well, it's just a little thing, can quickly snowball into something that's beyond our control and we're hurtling down the road towards Livermore Falls. <laughs> the same principle is true not only in our own individual lives. Um, lately, with all the unrest that's happening in Asia, um, I've read a, a few things about the concept of escalation in war. That when you're in a war which involves nuclear powers, countries with nuclear weapons, the one thing you want to avoid is escalation. Because things happen quickly in war, and without even really deciding to, right, one strike happens and then the next strike from the other side is a bit more and then a bit more and then a bit more, and quickly you can move up the ladder. And so one of the sort of military doctrines is that of escalation, and you don't want to escalate unless you absolutely have to. But this sort of escalation we, we can see in, even in interpersonal relationships, right? When you get into an argument and you get a little mad and then you, you say a little more than you should and then they say a little more than they should and pretty soon you're at nuclear war. We're hitting on a principle here which we're going to see vividly illustrated in the life of Cain. Of the compounding nature of sin that sin quickly spirals uncontrollably in our own lives and in our relationships. And what we're going to see this morning is the spiraling of sin, first in Cain's life and then in the life of his descendants. And my hope is that we'll learn something about ourselves and our own tendency to spiral. But more than that, also that, that we would see the mercy of God towards Cain. And that we would come to see that the only way out of this sort of spiral in our own lives and in our relationships is to press into the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading the chapter. We'll read all of Genesis 4, and then we'll pray. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife... And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. 
Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me to today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to your word and as we, as we examine this sobering passage, uh, that you would meet us here and that you would speak to us and that uh, in our own sin and in our own seemingly inevitable spirals into sin, that you would meet us there and that you would call us out and that you would show us the way to freedom and life in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay. So we're looking at two things as we go through this passage. Two threads woven throughout this, this tapestry of a passage. First of all, the, the thread, spiraling thread, of sin. First in Cain and then in his descendants. And then also the that golden thread of God's mercy also woven throughout, subtle at times. But even as Cain and his descendants are spiraling into sin, God is meeting them there and showing them mercy. So let's start with Cain. We looked at Cain last week. Um, Cain's the older of the brothers, 
Abel's his younger brother, and we, we looked last week in depth at their sacrifice and the question of why is it that Cain's sacrifice was rejected and Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And, and the root of the issue we discovered is that Abel was offering his best. He offered of the firstborn of his flock. He was bringing a genuine sacrifice. He was actually showing that God was worth something to him. Cain brought something. Right? He brought something from the fruit of the ground. It wasn't actually a sacrifice. It didn't, wasn't, didn't really hurt him at all. And so he showed in his heart that he didn't really value God and approaching him in worship. So this is, this is the issue here at the root between Cain and Abel. But this morning we're not looking at that issue, we're looking at the fallout. Because for Cain, what begins with careless worship soon descends into something far more serious. Notice Cain's reaction. Again, we're in Genesis 4, beginning in verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So what happened? Cain was very angry, and his face fell. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's, like, actually mad, like, like really angry. And, and you can almost see it in their face, right? There's this kind of darkness that can fall over a person's face when they're angry. I think that's what's being described here, that Cain's face fell, right? a kind of darkness fell over his face. He's very angry. And the Lord asks him, why are you angry? Right? Why are you angry, Cain? Why has your face fallen? And presumably here, Cain is angry at Abel, and he's angry at God. Right? He's angry at Abel because that goody two-shoes had his sacrifice accepted. He always does everything right. And because God had the gumption to accept his sacrifice, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, and reject mine. And it's interesting that the Lord asks him, Cain, why are you angry? Because Abel hasn't done anything wrong. God hasn't done anything wrong. The issue is with Cain. Cain's the one who came to worship carelessly. And yet Cain, in his sin as we are all prone to do, tends to shift the blame outward. <laughs> and we find anyone to pin the blame on it to be angry at other than ourselves. And so you can begin to see Cain's sin morphing here and beginning a, a slide down the spiral. Right? What begins with careless worship is now turning into anger. And here's where the Lord stops him. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry, Cain? Why has your face fallen? And then he sets before Cain two options, basically. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So the Lord is, is being merciful here. He's meeting Cain, even in his sin, and saying, Cain, take a minute. Breathe, look around you. This is not your brother's fault. It's not my fault. Right? You brought a careless sacrifice. 
And you can actually turn and repent, Cain. You, if you do well, your sacrifice will be accepted. You need to look to yourself and, and determine what's gone wrong in your heart, and, and your worship can be accepted, Cain. But watch out if you take the other option, Cain. Right, there's this picture of this predatory animal. You can imagine a, a jaguar or a, or a tiger prowling up, getting ready, or even your house cat, right, prowling out in the yard, getting ready to strike, and then <laughs> strike. This is the picture of, of sin in Cain's life. God's saying, there is an element within you, this element of sin, Cain, which, which will eat and devour you from the inside out if you let it. And what's the warning? Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so the Lord's, very, the Lord's kind to Cain here. Right? Spiral of sin, kindness of God. The mercy of God. He's saying, Cain, you have an option here. You can choose to keep going down this path, or in my mercy, you can actually be brought out of it. Repent. Confess. What does Cain do? Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain refuses to hear the voice of God. Instead, allows himself to be conquered by his own sin. And what began with careless worship and had descended into anger has now progressed to hate and even murder. And this is the first shedding of human blood in human history. And the Lord comes to Cain. Again, notice the mercy of God. The Lord could have struck him down the moment he struck down his brother. That would have been just. But no, that's not what he does. He comes to Cain. And as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, he begins to try to draw Cain out. Where is Abel, your brother? God knows where he is. It's a rhetorical question. He's looking for confession here from Cain. Cain, will you confess your sin? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? No confession here. Right? Just a lie. I don't know. Presumably, Cain had just finished burying his brother's body with his own bare hands. He knows where his brother is, precisely. Am I my brother's keeper? Asks a question back to God. Answer, yes. Yes, you are responsible to love your neighbor, Cain. The Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, you shall no longer yield. It shall no longer yield to you its strength. Remember, this is actually Cain's job, right? He was literally a worker of the ground. He, he, he was a farmer. <laughs> And so as a consequence for his sin, the Lord is, is telling him, the ground is actually now cursed even more than it was under Adam. Because 
it's sort of anthropomorphic language here. It's like the ground has swallowed up your brother's blood and it's almost angry at you. Is sort of the, the picture. Not that the, the ground actually has a, a heart, but that's, that's sort of the picture, right? That the, the ground is angry at you, Cain, and it won't bear fruit for you anymore. But even here, the Lord is merciful to Cain. He says, you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You can't just settle down in one place because you can't grow anything anymore, Cain. And Cain, notice again here what Cain does in verse 13. Still no confession, still no repentance, just whining. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's too harsh, Lord. This is a man who's just killed his brother, cold blood. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. God, someone might kill me. And even here, the Lord's merciful. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. Usually when people talk about the mark of Cain, it's almost like a mark of shame, like this mark is to mark him out as a murderer so everyone will remember, but not so. This is very early in human history. There's not that many people around. Everyone knows Cain. Everyone knows what he did. That's what Cain's so worried about. This is the dangerous man. He's the only murderer in the world. Let's get rid of him. And the Lord's merciful to him. Because this could spiral out of control real quickly. Right? Cain begins with careless worship, then anger, then hate, then murder. And now he's going to be killed. And it's like, where will this spiral of bloodshed stop? And so the Lord intervenes. He's kind to Cain. He says, no, no one's going to kill you. I'm going to protect you, Cain. Even though you refused to protect your brother and, in fact, killed him in cold blood, I will protect you, Cain. You're not going to die. Often when we read Old Testament passages, we're looking for, for a, a positive example, right? Abraham was a man of faith, and so you be a man of faith, a woman of faith. And Abraham is an example for us that way. Cain is the negative example, Cain is a picture to us of what happens when you ignore the voice of God and refuse to listen to his voice when he calls you out of the spiral of sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13, which is a verse I would encourage you commit to memory, says this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide for you a way out so that you can stand up under it. Okay? This is the promise of God. You can lean on this. The, the Lord intervened at a key point for Cain. He says, stop, Cain, take a breather, think about what you're doing. You've got two ways you can go, the way to life and the way to death. Which way will you choose? 
and the Lord is kind to us too, we actually have a promise in the very word of God that when we're tempted to sin, when we begin this downward spiral, when we begin to snowball down the slope into an avalanche, the Lord, pause, and he provides us with a way out. We don't always take it. But he's faithful, he's kind to do this for us. And even then when we sin, like, like to Cain, what does the Lord say to us? Where's your brother? What have you done? Get it out in the light, Cain. He refused to do that. Is your life marked by a pattern of confession? Is your heart open before the Lord regularly? Where when you've begun to sin, you can bring it out in the open and confess it and turn from it? This is supposed to be a, a mark of what it means to be a Christian. Right? We're not perfect people. Right? And if you pretend to be a perfect person, um, you're being a Pharisee, not a Christian. But what we are committed to as Christians is the pursuit of Christ-likeness, that we want to be moving in that direction. And a key part of that is that regularly the Lord is going to be calling us out into confession and repentance. What have you done? State it. And then to be forgiven. And this again is, is a way that the Lord can actually stop us from spiraling into sin. In a way, confession or repentance is a bit like pulling up the emergency brake, hurtling down the highway. It's like you, you could hurtle right off the cliff, but it's like, all right. It doesn't have to spiral any further. The consequences of sin and the mercy of God continue not only in Cain's life, but also in the life of his descendants. We're told that, that Cain took a wife and that Cain had a son named, named Enoch um, who built a, a city. Cain built a city and named it after Enoch. And then we're... We're given a, a short genealogy here, a number of generations of Cain. Um, Cain had a son named Enoch, who had a son, Mahujael and Methusael, and then Lamech. Lamech, and we're not told much about the others, but we are told something about Lamech. And Lamech is another interesting case here where we're, we're seeing actually Cain's sin spiraling even further in Lamech's life, and yet at the same time also the mercies of God alongside it. Um, if you want to summarize what we know about Lamech, it's that he tended to multiply sin. And this in a couple of ways. First of all, he takes two wives, which is contrary to God's creation design. We looked in Genesis 1 and 2, and, and God's design in the beginning is of one man and one woman in a marriage relationship. That's God's definition of marriage. But Lamech is greedy, and he takes for himself two, right? He sins in his multiplication. But he doesn't sin just in multiplying wives. He also sins in multiplying 
revenge. Um, in verses 22 and, uh, 23 and 24, you might see in your Bible that these verses are inset. That someone hit the tab button. Um, so it's formatted like poetry. This is a little song that Lamech sings to his wives. It's a strange song. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So if Cain sinned in killing his brother, Lamech is saying, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to up the ante. We're, we're doing multiplication on sin here. He informs his wives in a boasting way, I've killed a man for wounding me. Some kid slapped me on the street today, and I shot him. He's boasting in his, in his carelessness in the shedding of blood. A young man for striking me. And he flips around God's promise to Cain. Right? God had promised, Cain, if anyone kills you, I'll avenge you sevenfold. That was to protect Cain. And Lamech flips it around. He says, if anyone so much as slaps me, my revenge is going to be 77-fold. This is disproportionate escalation of sin. If Cain's revenge is 77-fold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And so as we look at Cain's line, it doesn't look too pretty. Right? What began with Cain just gets worse as it goes. And yet, alongside this shocking man, Lamech, we hear of his children. That Jabal was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. That Jubal was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. That Tubal-Cain was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. That even from Lamech's family comes the blessing of this culture and of music, and of these musical instruments, and of the pipe, and the lyre, and, and these, these metal instruments. And we see here, again, alongside this spiraling of sin, the mercy of God. That even to Cain's descendants, a people who seemingly had given themselves entirely over to sin, and even glorying in, boasting in, their disproportionate sin, that God was blessing them with the blessing of music. This is what theologians have call, come to call common grace. Common grace. And we see this even in our day. That, that even in cultures entirely given over to sin, rebelling against God, he causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. As scripture says, the Lord causes the rain to fall both on the just and on the unjust. It's in the mercy of God, first of all, that any of us have life as sinners, that he doesn't strike us all down like he did in the days of the flood, but also that, that we're able to experience good things in this world. The smell of lilacs and the taste of strawberry rhubarb pie, right? You can be in rebellion against God and enjoy those things. 
And I think this actually should, should serve as somewhat of a warning to us. Because it's easy to presume upon the grace of God. To go so long in sin and rebellion against God and to say, well, he hasn't struck me down yet. Right? To, wait, to take one step into sin and say, well, he didn't strike me down there. And the next step into sin, well, he didn't strike me down there. And the next step into sin, well, he didn't strike me down there. And to presume upon the grace of God. This is a dangerous thing to do. And it's easy to do because God is so kind. Because even after a, a day when we sin grievously, we wake up the next morning and the sun still rises. I think this is, this is a part of why people who are in rebellion against God say, well, what difference does it make whether I, whether I confess my sin and repent and turn to the Lord and bow the knee or not? The sun still rises. This is taking advantage of the common grace of God. And there will come a day of judgment. And we ought to be careful to live in light of that day. So that's Cain and his descendants. At the end of the chapter, we, we hear about another brother. There's Cain and there's Abel, and of course, Cain killed Abel. But another son is born to Adam and Eve. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, which means appointed. It sounds like the word appointed. For she said, God has appointed for me, another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why is it that Eve's so anxious to have another son? Think back with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 that God had promised Eve a descendant, an offspring, who would crush the serpent, who would crush Satan, who would destroy the works of the devil and save humanity from sin. That's the promise in Genesis 3, that one of Eve's boys is going to do this. Eve's not told who this is. It's one of your boys, Eve. And she's not told which generation this boy's going to come. She's just told... One of your boys, Eve, is going to do this. And she has two boys, and one kills the other. It's like if it was going to be Cain or Abel, probably would have been Abel, right? His sacrifice was accepted, but now he's dead. And Cain's in rebellion against God. How could he be the, the promised seed? And so they have another son, Seth. And she says again, God has appointed for me another offspring, another seed. This is the same word that's back in Genesis 3.15. This is a new line. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for, Abel, for Cain killed him. And we're told that after Seth was born, at this time people began to call upon the Lord. But apparently, Seth's line um, is, is worshiping God in some right way. Okay? Even as Cain's line has wandered off into rebellion, Seth and his descendants in some way are, are actually being faithful, at least for a time. reading all these names in the Old Testament, and there'll be more. Next, the next chapter is, 
there's a lot of genealogy. So we'll look at that next week. But looking at all these genealogies in the Old Testament can become a bit boring. Also, it's a mouthful, right? Because these names are in a different language. Um, it's a bit like reading someone's genealogy who you don't know, right? It's like it's one thing to read your own genealogy. Like, oh, my great-great-great-grandfather was named such and such and lived in such and such. That's so cool, right? But someone else is like, I don't know these people. I don't know these people. Who do I care? But when we're reading the genealogies of Scripture, whether you know it or not, you do know these people. You know these people. It should matter to you. Seth should matter to you and who his son was. Turn with me to chapter Luke, um, the book of Luke. The book of Luke. The New Testament. Chapter 3. One of the two genealogies of Jesus Christ recorded for us in the New Testament. One's in Matthew 1. This one is in Luke chapter 3. And this genealogy goes all the way back, as we'll see, to the beginning. It starts with Jesus. Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat. And then this goes on for quite some time. It's not an exhaustive genealogy. There's some names left out. But eventually, we get all the way back to the beginning. Verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And why does... Why does Luke spend so much time here recounting for us the genealogies? Like, I can't pronounce half these names, and I don't even know who they are. Well, now you know who Seth is, and you know who Adam is, and you know what God promised Adam's wife. One of your boys is going to kill the serpent, and Jesus is the boy. Jesus is the son of Eve, the seed of Eve, who came to crush the serpent, to destroy the works of the devil, and to save humanity from sin and death. That's what Luke's showing us here. And that's why, that's why Seth should matter to us. And so all of this is foreshadowed here in verses 25 and 26, that even as humanity is wandering astray, that God is making his mercy known, preserving a line of promise from whom one day would come Jesus, who came to save his people from his sins. And Jesus came and he taught many things, a couple of which I think he may have taught with Lamech in mind. Remember on one occasion, Jesus was talking about what you should do if someone slaps you across the face. What does he say to do? Turn the other cheek. Right. Lamech gets slapped in the face and he kills the man. Jesus says, give him the other cheek. Breaking this cycle, this vicious spiral of escalation. And then on another occasion, the disciples came to him and they said, teacher, how, how many times should we forgive someone? Right. What would be a reasonable number? Right can't go on forever, right? But maybe like four or five times we should forgive someone, or maybe as many as seven, 
is the number they finally settle on. That's a nice, that's a nice biblical number, a seven, seven times. And what does Jesus say? Right, not, not seven, and not 77, which is Lamech's number, 70 times seven. 70 times seven. I think he's explicitly referencing Lamech here. Right? Jesus is turning the tables on this whole cycle of escalating sin. Because apart from a savior, apart from a Messiah, apart from one who can forgive and reconcile and heal and make new, then it actually sort of makes sense for us to be constantly at each other's throats. And if someone hurts me, I'm gonna hurt them back. Right? What's the old saying? Hurt people hurt people. And they tend to try and hurt them more than they've been hurt. Put it to them, right? And this is what Jesus is talking about with turning the cheek. This is what he's talking about with forgiveness, right? Even if it's 70 times seven. And this is all enabled by the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? First of all, how is it that we can learn to confess our sin and repent when God calls us out of it? Well, why would we ever do that without the assurance that God will actually forgive us in Jesus Christ? And we have that assurance that actually the cycles of our sin can be broken because we can actually be forgiven, our sin totally removed from us, and not only that, but that we're given the spirit of Jesus Christ who actually enables us to live lives of new obedience. That we can actually be freed, not by our own power, but by the power of the resurrected Christ. And we have that assurance. And not only that, but how can we learn to forgive one another? How can we flip this 77 talk on its head? Well, Jesus talks elsewhere about being forgiven. He tells this whole story of a guy who's been forgiven like $5 million or something crazy like that. And, and immediately after being forgiven all these debts, he goes out... <laughs> and he holds it against his friend who's, who owes him like two bucks. And he's, he like takes him to court because he owes him two bucks. And Jesus is like, this makes no sense. If you've been forgiven much, how can you not forgive much? And what we as Christians need to recognize is that in Jesus Christ, We've not been forgiven seven sins or 77 sins or even 70 times seven sins, but we have been forgiven our sin which we have committed against an infinite God. And there's no way to quantify that sin. And yet Jesus bore it upon himself. We have been forgiven much. Which is why we pray, Lord, forgive us our sins even as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgiving 70 times seven doesn't make any sense to sons of Cain. Doesn't make any sense to people who don't know Jesus. But when the gospel begins to break in, it changes everything. And my prayer is that for us, in our congregation, in our lives, in our families, that the renovating, reconciling, forgiving 
power of Jesus Christ would so overwhelm our hearts and our lives that it would begin to spill out into our families and our communities because the thing that Jesus is doing, you think about snow as, as sin as a snowball effect. Jesus is doing the reverse thing, right? It's this, for, it's this snowball effect of remaking the universe, right? The snowball effect of new life that God is bringing into the world and into the lives of his saints through the kingdom of God and the power of the Spirit. God is making, what, what, did Jesus, what does Jesus say in the Revelation, right? I am making all things new. And my prayer is that we would see this snowball effect, not of sin, right, but of the reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives as we reconcile to God and in our lives as we reconcile with those around us. That in us and in his church, Jesus Christ would be made known among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. Lord, it can be pretty hopeless when we find ourselves in a spiral of sin or when we find ourselves down at the bottom of the spiral in the pit. And we pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that we would not be like Cain and refuse you, but that we would hear your voice as you call us out of sin, that we would heed you as you come to us in temptation and give us a way out, that we would listen to your voice as you, as you bid us come when we've sinned and and that we would not turn away in fear, but that we would come to you with full assurance, knowing that you forgive sin in Jesus Christ, and that you can make us new. We pray, Lord, that you grant us true repentance, that we would see the, the sinfulness of sin, see it for what it is, and that we would see to the beauty of Christ and turn to you with our whole hearts. Pray, too, Father, that, that our lives would not be marked by this sort of exponential growth of sin, but instead an exponential growth of righteousness. That, Lord Jesus, you would be made manifest in our homes, in our families, in our communities. That many would come to know and to believe and to bow the knee to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.